death sentence for this week. Uh, I'm really sorry you live in this world. We got a good book on the show this week, and we got uh, a new friend to discuss it with. Uh, this is uh, the Licrit Guy, who you'll know from Twitter and his blog, the Licrit Guy, and his catchphrase, um, "I am the Licrit Guy." Go on, go on, say uh, it, say it. Come on. I'm I'm not I'm not a performing. I am say the, the phrase. Guy. I I am the Licrit Guy. He said He's saying it a lot before we started to record. Yeah, he loves so. That. He's just camera shy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, and I'm so happy to be here. So happy to be on the pod. Yeah, um, long so time, first pot- time. <laughs> making party with us tonight. Oh, gross! So excited! <laughs> so excited! <laughs> but um, uh, yeah. Why don't you just uh, in- introduce yourself to if folks don't know you? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, if uh, people don't know who I am, they are probably not as uh, online as the people who do. Um. Yeah, yeah my name is Electric Guy. I know, I know, I know. Uh, I am an academic. Uh, I live in the north of England. Um, I do research on Gothic studies, uh, which is super cool. Uh, and I also spend my time online uh, tweeting about literary theory and criticism and all the other stuff that uh, people don't have time to read themselves. I try and make it accessible and available for as many people as possible and you've also got some books coming out right on uh gothic theory on in bloomsbury i think it was uh yeah so i'm writing i'm writing a a book which is based on my phd which will probably be coming out uh very late next year for bloomsbury uh but through uh patreon i'm also writing a book on gothic marxism which is my uh, kind of main area of research interest at the moment. Uh, I just finished a reader's guide to Marx's Capital, uh, the first three chapters, because that's where most people get stuck and give up, which uh, I, get, I was putting out through Patreon. And I just yesterday, just yesterday, finished writing a commentary on uh, Frederick Jameson's uh, book, Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, which, again, you can get through uh, Patreon or you can just DM me on Twitter, and I will probably give it to you. Cool. And um, just real briefly, because I know this is like a book-length topic, but uh, what is Gothic Marxism as opposed to regular Marxism? Uh, it is Marxism, but spooky. Uh, no, uh, it's it's uh, a way of um, incorporating non-material aspects of uh, economics and culture and uh, history into Marxist analysis because like classically Marxist analysis would be pretty suspicious of stuff which is non-material uh, and would tend to kind of like write it off as maybe not being that interesting or worth paying attention to uh, and so actually I think in like cultural objects which we kind of commonly write off as being just rubbish and not worth analyzing there's some kind of really important stuff happening in them um, I wrote a paper about uh, the, the work of Blumhouse Productions who make uh, some very good and some really crappy horror movies talking about how horror is a kind of way of expressing economic anxiety in post-recession America. So very, very briefly, that is a kind of precy of what Gothic Marxism is about. Okay. That, that, and there's a good episode of uh, Revolutionary Left Radio on Gothic Marxism that uh, 
Liquid Guy appears on. Um, so to further the uh, discussion of Gothic Marxism, Slimer from Ghostbusters, is he a comrade? Uh, I think not just Slimer, but all of the uh, ghosts who are rounded up by these bourgeois cops are absolutely comrades. Um, these private prisons that have been created by these three Reaganite uh, middle-class men to uh, exert their kind of dominance over the spectral realm. Yeah, Slimer is totally a comrade. Is Gritty a comrade? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that even a question that is up for debate? Thank God. Does he? Would Gritty fall under the purview of Gothic studies? Uh, I think there is something pretty uh, amazingly monstrous about him. Uh, I've seen that gif that's been floating around. Is it on with Conan where he like tries to take the the head off and there's just another smaller head underneath? <laughs> and it's like it's like that all the way down. It's like one of those Russian nesting dolls. It's like it's like Dave from the hit film Meet Dave. Uh, where <laughs> Eddie Murphy is piloted by a much smaller a Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Uh, so I think there's something I think there's something potentially quite monstrous there. Uh, like monstrous a of gritty. Uh, absolutely, and which again would absolutely make him. I, I suspect more of an anarchist than a Marxist. Just do you think just, gritty is uh, the the new physical incarnation of Melmoth the Wanderer? <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke just for our guest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I. I hope so. <laughs> yes. there is, there's something behind the eyes that suggests a kind of eldritch spirit which has wandered this, the, this earth for centuries and has come seeking its terrible and bloody revenge on us all. Uh, every, so I hope so. Every hockey game he picks one unlucky, <laughs> unlucky member to ruin their lives and attempt to get them to take his horrible curse. Well, that's but what he has rebuffed get... game after game and thus returns to the ice, his that's home. What, that's what you get for being a hockey fan. Like, <laughs> just that's just the price of being there, being a fan of that particular sport. <laughs> Your life is pre-ruined already. You're you're watching hockey. How? I mean, is it one step know, up from baseball. I want to strongly admonish hatred of both hockey and baseball. I <laughs> I I do not stand for this. They're British, uh, though. They yeah. they don't. They don't know in their hearts. Even good sports like cricket. Um, but, uh, <laughs> no one knows how cricket works. Cricket, the only sport that is sort of direct evidence of the horrors of British colonialism turned into, like, passive spectacle for the middle class. And you can drink all day. It's amazing. You can drink all day. It has breaks for meals. It's the <coughs> only sport that I know that's named after an insect. Um, <laughs> it's like great. a hate. It's like a hateful anti-sport in which they do all the things in cricket that you do in every other sport, but in seemingly random order, and it takes several days to do. Literal days. The aim of cricket, which I will say unironically I'm sort of a fan of, is to diffuse the moments of excitement that you'll get from watching an ordinary sport across your entire week in incrementally tiny amounts. Cricket's truly amazing. Um, but let's talk about against creativity. It's uh, 
just come out on Verso, which pretty uh, solidly good press. Um, they've put out a ton of stuff. Like I think like one in eight books I own is by Verso, but um, and it's by a guy named Ollie Mould. He's uh, academic at Royal Holloway in London. Um, and Langdon, I'm really sorry you had to deal with all this British stuff. This is like a very British book. It was incredibly British. And I would just nod as he went full full British on me at times. And I'd be like, mm, yes, I know what this is. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Ed Miliband. That's a reference I know. I'm like the, 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 the doctor at create creativity and i could feel a spectral hand telling me no um so its main thesis is that creativity has been co-opted by capitalism i think that's as simple as it could possibly get and it kind of if you can get that then you can get the rest Mm. but um it breaks it down into the workplace, people, politics, technology, and the city. He's um, a human geographer uh, by trade, so the city part is pretty. Um, it goes a lot deeper. There's there was a lot of more references I didn't. There's a lot more new information in that particular um, section than there was in the uh, previous sections, which are kind of, you know, Uber. Fuck, what's up with that? Hey, that's a that's a terrible business model. But, you know. Anyone who's really into reading uh, contemporary academic work, human, um, it, uh, like all seven of us, um, human geography is a really, really fascinating field that sort of burst into being only a couple decades ago. It's just a lot of mind-bending cool stuff. What is, that, like, that... Wait, what is it exactly? Wait. Well, I think... What's interesting about human geography is that, like, a lot of people who maybe are kind of, like, ostensibly on the left or are on the left maybe don't necessarily think about things like the organization of urban space or architecture or uh, things like housing as being anything, like, in, in in the kind of detail and the kind of, like, direct analysis that geographers do. So I thought the the chapter on the city was maybe the most... Uh, interesting and like newest to me anyway Mm, definitely yeah Uh, so in that particular chapter he's talking about about art washing um the kind of like shortageization of the world or if you're Mm. in america the kind of portlandization of the world uh having lived in america and lived in like a portland like the hip district of my city i got to see this like really firsthand as my neighborhood well, got he mentions like, Boyle Heights in LA as well, right? He does, yeah. He's he mentions quite a few uh, places that are outside and uh, Miami. There's a pretty extensive um, talk about. Uh, I forget the neighborhood, uh, but I've never been to Miami. But um, a former, like mostly Latino neighborhood that's very urban industrial, and got turned into like a hipster nightmare, like because everything does in the end. Mm. And uh, that's even happening here in Macclesfield, of all places. And um, it's I mean, it's even happening here in um, in Manchester. There's a part of Manchester. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's happening in Manchester, you say? I, I would have never guessed. Yeah, <laughs> the northern quarter in Manchester is full of these like beautiful old 19th century buildings. Uh, and it's slowly they're slowly like this. And it's this incredible. You walk around it and you get like this. 
incredible sort of glimpse back into this industrial history that's full of like uh you know working class radicalism and and you know massive struggle against poverty and you walk around the northern quarter now and there's just these fucking horrible great holes punched into the kind of social fabric of the place because buildings which were built in like 1860 have just been ripped out of there so they can put up yet more luxury apartments mm, yeah the northern quarter's getting uh well, I, i've never seen it back in the day but uh i guess back in the day it was probably like 19th century but uh the northern quarter is uh, like a very hipster district mm. although the pier hat is like one of the best pubs in manchester but um no, fun- uh, so funnily enough, my my experience with human geography comes uh, a bit more directly, which is uh, um, it's funny because America actually has a lot of um, a lot of these thoughts sort of ingrained in in culture in a way, uh, which is surprising given how relatively new it is. But things like um, so, uh, Southern American radicalism touches a lot on the notion of uh, local. Non-racist heritage, non-racist, the not-racist kind. Um, no slavery—that's the bad part. But um, the notion of the way that we build our psyches and sense of self around uh, the objects and uh, locales around us—that's that girds our own personal humanity, which is then uh, corrupted by capitalism, or even just like wildly undervalued and bulldozed over and replaced with some. Uh, a uh, new displacing object that actually is buried quite a lot in like um like fucking Faulkner was writing about that mm-hmm. um so it's it's buried a lot in the sense uh, of uh it can turn it can obviously have a rightward turn like any of these critical theories can but it has sort of a history in just the way that Americans in poorer space talk about uh the way that your urban space or your um, rural space is not valued for what it is or for how the people who live there use it. It is instead valued as a potential outgrowth space for, like, the monstrous parasitic cell of capital. I mean, you look at what happened with Atlanta now, where if you look at Atlanta from the 1800s, its footprint is significantly smaller, and it has literally swallowed old cities and old towns into this new meta-Atlanta Uh and we even see that along with, like, uh, William Gibson tapped into this a bit with the Sprawl trilogy of the way that the eastern seaboard in America is mm-hmm. the largest metroplex in the world. Because you can go continuously from the southern tip of uh, Florida up to the northern tip of Maine, and it'll at most be, like, an hour between uh, metropoles. And it's just this near-continuous strip of, uh, like, of urbanization. That was where uh, Mega City One was, right? Yep. And you could go from like there was like a Quebec neighborhood to a Miami neighborhood, and um, <clears throat> so how convincing did you did you guys find the the main thesis here that creativity has been like so thoroughly co opted by capital that stuff would need to change pretty radically to to get us out of here. Oh, does this mean we can talk about Banksy? Oh God, yeah, I, I, he's. Um, I had him in my notes in capital letters, but uh, yeah, you may talk about Banky. Yeah, make hashtag make you think. 
Hashtag deep. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I find it quite convincing, but I think it's maybe not as kind of clear cut as... Because this is like polemic, right? He's trying to drive mm. home a point. And yeah. I think I'm totally behind that. But I think there are a couple of things about this which are maybe a little more complicated. Because it's like the parasitism of capital upon uh, creativity is not as new as he kind of makes it out to be. I mean, patronage is like an ancient Roman idea. Mm. Um, it's definitely accelerated and intensified, though, as well, um, which I, I think is totally true. And I think it's maybe a bit difficult to say that, like, there is... Like, I mean, is it, can we can we can we separate creativity out into the kind of like resistant anti-capitalist uh, production of cultural things and stuff which is like imbricated into capitalism? Because like as much as I enjoy the book, like it's on sale, right? <laughs> it's it's an it's an object that you 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 can and you should buy because it is it's an excellent read. But that doesn't mean that it's not creative. It's not like contributing to something. Hmm. <coughs> yeah, there was, um, I think, a uh, review in The Guardian that's like called him out on having a book that's in shops and has a barcode and you can buy it. And it wasn't quite as uh, as nuanced as, um, as that. It was just, it was more of a, um, oh, you hate capitalism but you've got a phone but, but, oh. but you live in society <laughs> yeah you have a house um, <laughs> but yeah I think that I think the overall point is that like there has been a like some this is something like Jameson writes about back in the 80s that there's been a slow economization of culture right hmm. you know culture hasn't been kind of it hasn't sort of disappeared it doesn't have that kind of aesthetic distance from the economic that it used to. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you used to have, like, Marxists writing about in, like, the 40s, that, like, revolutionary art would be that which is distanced from capitalism. But rather, like, culture has become, like, part of the economic totality through which we move, right? You can't get away from that. So, uh, like I say, I think that that bit of, his, of it is, like, totally convincing to me and something that I I think is is sort of, uh, uh, true in a really sort of self-evident way when you stop and analyse these things but that distinction between sort of resistant anti-capitalist creativity and capitalist creativity is maybe one that I think is a little more grey than the book kind of admits hmm. He is good at uh, talking about austerity although it's some of the stuff he some of the things he speaks about are kind of reaches where he has this subject of creativity and but he wants to talk about uber or um austerity measures in the uk and by referring to them as creative he gets to bring them into the fold and talk about them for a few pages mm. and um there are some parts where i thought particularly in the technology and people sections where i thought you could have cut this that's Maybe an article you could do elsewhere, but it's not reinforcing the point. I, the technology section, I mean, it's, it's all interesting stuff. If you haven't, it's, I've definitely heard this stuff before, but it's, um, yeah, I didn't see how that contributed to his main point. Uh, a lot of the point parts of the technology section, 
it's um because yeah it's obviously tech tech companies like to art wash themselves they like to be these creative spaces and uh, even though it's very dry programming a lot of the time they like to you know have a foosball table in the office kind of like my office in fact and um but uh technology seems pretty at least silicon valley it's silicon valley incarnation seems pretty enmeshed with capitalism already it doesn't seem to have been something that started out as for the people then got taken it seems like it got a thin veneer of creativity added to it after a while and but has always been a part of capitalism and the military industrial complex a lot so i wasn't so while i don't disagree with that i think that at least um he's doing his due diligence it's sort of the uh the frustrating bit of um sometimes reading especially more theory grounded nonfiction stuff where their job is not entirely to uh, just make the point convincingly, but also to give in, like an insurmountable about, amount of evidence that are thought. Mm-hmm. And that can, um, in this case, I think it was his job to not only say that capital goes into formerly creative space and corrupts it and turns it towards its own ends, but also it looks at itself and goes, oh, if I dress myself in these clothes, then I can get away with doing what I've always done because now I can make what is obviously parasitic appear cultural. And so like we look at the language of disruption and technology and that's sort of the big area that I was looking at. Like the reason why Elon Musk is uh, fawned over by like Reddit users everywhere is precisely because of the sort of brand managed uh, faux creative air that he gives with like the boring company where it's, it is not a capitalist shilling his work, which in a certain negative way, is at least, like, respectably evil. Like, you look at Lex Luthor, and you're like, I know what he's doing. You know, I hate him, but, you know, I, I know what Lex is up to. Um, yeah. Instead, he dresses himself in this, like, no, I'm a philanthropist, and I, you know, I help the people. Um, but you're right, it does go back even to people like uh, Carnegie, um, who built public works with their money, but then would still, as a way to buy public acceptance for the mass brutality that they carried out within their uh, capitalist enterprises. And so I like, I feel like he couldn't not mention it, even though it's, it's like, it's perhaps the least interesting and most obvious point you could make. Um, But like he'd be, he's required to say it because otherwise it's someone's going to pop up online and make a whole uh, call out thread about like, but what about Uber drivers? And he's gonna be like, we talk about that every day. Yeah, and of course, it's it's just driving home that point, isn't it? That this kind of notion of creativity is is ideology. You know, we're not talking about. Uh, I think maybe this is a better a kind of distinction. I would have less of a problem with, which is like the creativity, which is capitalist ideology disguised, where you go, you know. That would be your Elon Musk's, and then the creativity, which is like genuine human creating of things in the world. But again, even that, I don't think you can kind of easily demarcate between the two. No. Yeah, 
it also ignores a, a strong element of any sort of um, real class struggle that it's... Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out a way to say this that isn't just uh, zinging uh, like loud mouths online, but in in a reality where you must... Well, it goes back to the book having a barcode thing. In a reality where until we throw off these shackles, you do have to pay your rent. You do have mm-hmm. to get food or you die. Um to then turn on, I get turning on spaces that utilize art in that manner to sort of cloak their villainy, but to to assume that there would be an easy way for, especially artists, to avoid complicity or creative types to avoid complicity, where creativity of a culture is both the very first thing a culture has and also the very last thing. Mm-hmm. All that middle of building infrastructure and building uh, day-to-day usable objects um, and making use of them uh, occurs sort of outside of traditional creative space. It obviously is technically a creative act that everyone does, like the sort of common zoned creativity. But the day-to-day, like, someone making art uh, is even coming from a writer, admittedly, like, that's the garnish to a society. It's not the meat and body of it. And so as a result, the ability even to... The ability to sell creative labor in even close to a Marxist sense uh, is extremely finicky. And so it seems sometimes that he picked by by attacking so much the notions of is it does it count as creativity? I think I I, I agreed that it was picking the wrong target there and like emphasizing the wrong element of this issue. Because mm. obviously, like keep Austin weird and you know keep Portland weird type bullshit is very real and often incredibly racist um just just quiet racist um but yeah picking on the the figures who contribute the artwork to that project sometimes Mm -hmm. felt strange to me yeah i mean everyone's gonna eat like yeah and uh if anyone's interested look up like portland Oregon and it's like treatment of like hip hop artists it used to have like a vibrant hip hop scene but then the cops just decided that hip hop equals crime and criminality and they cut down on it like majorly shut down all the clubs and all the artists had to move and yeah the the keeping Portland weird thing is um yeah like Langley said it's got a lot of racial problems in there um but Let's take a break to listen to a song. Um, These guys are called Body Void. They're from San Francisco, uh, which is like the original Keep It Weird city. They're um, kind of a uh, blackened doom outfit. I think they're a duo. Uh, This is a trio from their picture. Uh, I don't know. um, They're on Seeing Red Records. And or at least and dry cough in the UK, and they're good as hell. And I should have been looking at them a while ago because uh, this album came out in May, and it's uh, it's not May anymore. 
but there's um <laughs> there's uh quite a lot of on here about uh body dysmorphia gender dys- dysphoria um and just living as a as i guess a queer person in the modern world and which it turns out is really great uh subject matter for doom who would have thought so we're gonna listen to phantom limb uh of i live inside a burning house uh, which you can find on Bandcamp and other places and then we'll come back for more against creativity <laughs>
Ugh, I've got such a cough lately. Okay. Because you've been sinning. Uh, what? Sorry? It's because you've been sinning that you got oh, that yeah. cough. Yeah, I, I think it must be. I, I, I had a cold and I was getting over it and it was like going. And then I just got another cold. And no you did a my... sin and it came back. I know. I'm trying to figure out what the sin was. Probably um, all of them. <laughs> You're a completionist. Good. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to like hundred percent uh, the bad parts of the Bible. <laughs> I'm trying to like My, wear clothes uh, that have more than two materials. I'm trying to like uh, touch women who have had their periods who haven't been into the three day cleansing tent. You know, just just I want a hundred percent Leviticus. Just a hundred percent run. Yeah. My yeah, speed run. Up, yeah. Not yeah. I'm gonna pick up all the uh, hidden items too. <laughs> but uh yeah let's talk about against creativity some more so um one of the cool things that uh i kind of was thinking about while reading this book and didn't get a huge amount of play in the book itself was that the idea that if you do real creative work i.e if you're not like a a creative in an advertising agency or a social media manager. Uh, if you're a writer or an artist or a photographer or anything real creative, that in the 21st century, you should be totally fine with not being paid for that or being mm. paid very little and having to have a, a real a real job to support it. And I was remembering a, a tweet someone put out about a year or two ago, maybe, where they screenshotted a picture from uh, a book from, the, I think, the 50s. And it was just a very casual throwaway line about uh, a writer for I think, Newsweek or some, some big like weekly magazine uh, just feeling a little, a little like burnt out. So the magazine paid for them to go live in the south of France for a couple of years just to get back, get their head back in the game. And once they had uh, you know, their two years in south France, they could just come back and they could work again. Like, even if you're a hedge fund manager, you won't get treated like that. That's like an Im impossible utopian dream to be treated that well by any company, let alone a magazine. A magazine would more likely tell you you've got to work for exposure. Mm. So, well, this is something this is something I've 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 written about before. Is this kind of the way in which? Uh, neoliberalism which is one of the big targets in this book contracts the space in which like practical different ways of living are possible because if you economize culture you can only consider culture in economic terms right so what you essentially do is you create uh, a a situation where the only culture is uh, that is produced is produced by the people who can afford to spend their time producing it who can win the kind of big commissions from uh BP or from Raytheon or from whatever other industry wants to launder their blood money and kind of try and wash their hands of the of what they've done through culture because it's 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 cheaper than the other kind of financial Ponzi schemes they come up with. So it's like if if all if what we've done is kind of reduce everything to the level of economic transaction, then like it becomes impossible to think of something like that long term of like a, a an organization going 
beyond something like, well, we've laid on this half an hour mindfulness seminar for you. <laughs> Hopefully that'll help you reduce the, the crushing alienation of yourself from your own labor. And uh, maybe it'll make you more productive as well. So like it's, 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 it's a kind of like symptom of the, of the space in which we exist that we can't, because the thing is, like, that wasn't utopian. That was that was something that existed. That's something that yeah. happened, something we had. Um, and it's now become something which, you know, you mention that to someone and they would call you a kind of utopian idealist or a dreamer. So, like, if you economize culture, you can only consider culture in economic terms. He does, um, just picking up on uh, something you said there, he does at the end of the book... Uh, in his conclusion and recommendations chapter, uh, mm. talk about um, the problems of organizing things to get back to normal or to get back to where we were in the fifties when you know you'd a guy could leave school, go into a union job, afford a house, his wife didn't have to work, and you, you live in the suburbs and have two cars, uh, which today is a utopian dream. It's kind of a problematic utopian dream because it implies women have to be raising children. But um, the idea of one parent family, a, a family with two parents and one of them works and one of them stays home with the kids is a practical impossibility nowadays in most of the West. Mm. And um, yeah, and organizing to get back there is something that uh, Ollie Mould doesn't seem to think is a is as useful as more radical approaches. Is uh did that strike any of you guys? Yeah, it uh because it it touches on something which is um it's important it's important to keep in mind when despairing from a, uh the the conditions of the contemporaneous is mm-hmm. that we look back at some of these things and we should not I mean this is sort of like uh Marks one hundred one we should not hold them in a nostalgic lens because that short trips the struggle that was occurring in those times. You should not aim for what was the problematic present for someone else. You should continuously aim for, like, seek mechanics to arrive at the actual ideal instead of going like, oh, I want to go back to... Because that eventually just becomes a road to um, reactionary thinking. Like, mm-hmm. there, there's no way to, uh, to, to have it go any other way. You become mm. so fixated on returning that that's where you get, like, I'm progressive. I just think what those black people do on TV is too much. And you're like, uh. Well, I was, um, as I said, I was writing about Jameson's postmodernism. And towards the end of the first chapter, he says something really uh, important, I think, where he's talking about, like, the the kind of downsides of postmodernity in that, that historical period are evident and obvious. But he makes the claim that there's this dialectical responsibility to also see it as a both a catastrophe and opportunity, because that's what Marx did with capital, right? Marx saw capitalism as this kind of great accumulation of potential power that was being wasted and wrecking kind of devastation. So it's like, can we you can't go backwards because, you know, as you say, that just opens the door to reactionary politics and uh, huge amounts of violence to enforce it but what you can do and as Jameson puts it what you kind of have to do is if if you want to think historically and dialect, dialectically about a particular moment 
is to see it as, you know, he says postmodernism is both catastrophe and a massive opportunity. So it's the conditions of possibility for a kind of new, better way of living. Um, and that is difficult. That's much more difficult than going back to a kind of nostalgic prelapsarian time of like stability and, and good, good one salary households, because that, again, that's the kind of myth of reversing progress that you just won't be able to achieve without like huge amounts of violence and repression. So I think that's the challenge of, of the book is what ways of creativity can we think beyond the current situation? Yeah, even uh, one of the major forces in creativity right now, Patreon, has like kind of baked in a very reactionary mindset of yeah patronage. Old school Austrian count likes your symphonies, therefore they will pay for your house. Kind of patronage. It's um. Yeah, and it's hard to, yeah, very hard to see beyond that because people do need to get paid and no one's got any money anymore. That's um, kind of the, the big point about modern Western society is ordinary people don't have enough money to do good things. Like half the uh, shops on my high street are closed because no one has any money to spend in them. We've got to beg and scrape on Patreon for five bucks here and there because a institution isn't going to pay for us to do cool stuff all the time. It's uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. But, um... I mean, we already see um, like uh, so it's something that is sort of the continuous hopefulness that I think shows up even in harsh capitalist conditions, and that. Thankfully, we can go back to talking about Judge Dread temporarily. That that yes. demonstrates, and really, really any any cyberpunk demonstrates, which is that production of culture pre and or pre exists the capital urge in in all psychological conditions. We want to make our lives meaningful. Even the worst capitalist wants to make their life meaningful. They do so through corrupting uh, narcissistic means, but. Um, it's it's part of sort of a human condition that cannot be subtracted out. And uh, as as you were talking about earlier, you uh, while a lot of traditional Marxist uh, academic thought sort of doesn't privilege the creation of culture or creation of human experience, that is sort of ultimately the thing that we shoot that that we crave socialism for. It's not just to make lives healthier and more livable. It's also to allow us to become the space to become more human without these sort of artificial fetters that also right, impoverish um, Yeah, you, know, you work in the morning and become a literate guy in the afternoon, right? <laughs> uh, but what we see are these shadow networks and of artists who. So it's this weird myth that um, that is persistent in creative space, but is not. 100% true, which is that the only people who can make art are the people who can afford to spend the time to make art. And the flip side of that, another way to phrase it, is that making art in conditions of capital requires tremendous, sometimes irrational sacrifice. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. not to say that that's good. It is not good that there should be that much sacrifice, but most 
writers that I know, most artists that I know, most musicians that I know are beyond working class people. They're making like sub 20,000 a year. They're very, very poor. Um, but deliberately make this sacrifice because to some, to some human instinct, culture and the value of being alive supersedes having even a decent house. And that mm. is ultimately deeply frustrating because it's that it, it is precisely that persistent uh, human perseverance that can be taken advantage of by capital. Like if we cared about it less, we would perhaps be inclined to revolt more, but it's precisely the fact that there are a number of artists that make art until they die in deep poverty or die in deep poverty because they pursued art instead of other things. And it's this, you, you can't comfortably say that that is wrong or that that is bad, that they actually valued giving creative works directly to people, um, like making it widely available, um, not turning it into like gaudy ass, like four million dollars. Like, you know, mega pieces, um, and yet are punished for it because of precisely the fact that their willingness to be punished helps propagate the system in which others will be. It's this, it becomes this Ouroboros of mm. how do you demand to be paid for, for your work as, as a writer? There is a privileging of older. There's both a privileging of older uh, established writers in places that would pay you, and you don't like the the psychological uh, grind of writing continuously or making art continuously, sometimes for years and years, and submitting it to no response. Versus you could submit to this, you bond that. They will put it in front of an audience. You can build an audience. And, like, there's the clear negative of this. This diminishes, obviously, the um, engine of being a writer or being an artist and not doing it for places like Raytheon, not um, making graffiti or, like, paid graffiti on the wall of some, like, hedge fund or something like that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's this frustrating and at times seemingly intractable reality of like but what is a working artist to do that's sort of the, the classic lenin uh, uh leninist thought of like but what are we to do like we can talk about how this is bad and we want some other thing but for not for someone who engages with economic theory or engages with um the way the capital ought to comport itself or uh, neoliberalism ought to be destroyed. For the people who are creative in this manner that he's talking about, <coughs> how are you to write? How are you to make art? How are you to make film? And that's not... Um, that's... A, I, while I didn't disagree with his points, there was sort of the mild chauvinism that people outside of the art world bring to it. Assuming that artists do not talk about this or, in fact, are not continuously talking about it. Like, 24-7. You know, if they're not talking about it, they're thinking about it. Or, in my case, making lengthy spreadsheets 
sometimes with multiple uh, things, trying to work out if there's any way that I could possibly devote eight hours a day to making art without also bankrupting my entire family and living in a ditch. But um, there was a thing I saw recently. It was a hedge fund guy, funnily enough, since we have come to use hedge fund guys as like shorthand for everything awful about the current moment. He um, quit his hedge fund in order to build a new type of publishing enterprise where he's going to get a writer um, and basically sit them down in an office for eight hours a day and they get paid like a salary. I think it's a pretty decent middle class salary. And all they do all day is, is write the books that this hedge fund guy approves of. So they'll pitch him ideas. The hedge fund guy will say, yeah, do that, but I want it done in this way. And he will pay their salary. And um, I can't work out if that's monstrous or like so good it's bad. Or it probably is just monstrous, right? I mean, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, good. Okay, pretty, I'm glad. Okay, it's I'll, pretty I'll, bad. I mean, I'll rescind my application though. It's uh, it's not too far removed from like quite a lot of uh, larger publishers have been caught doing this, where you have a really popular name, so you slap their name on the on the cover, and what you what you've got is you've got like uh, you know, maybe five MFA grads cranking out uh, copy for you know, 25 bucks per 20,000 words. Um, and they do it because it's a cheap way of generating a lot of content very quickly. And even if you don't sell very much, you don't need to. Um, you, on, on a lower level, you can do this. If you want to be a freelance writer, you can be a freelance writer who uh, writes um, like Kindle one shots and there'll be publishing companies that will like uh, just take your story and they will put like, their generic author's name on it and then market it and sell it and you will get a much smaller proportion of the like it's a way of kind of adding in another layer of marketization to that process of artistic creation so it's kind of like what um james patterson or tom clancy do yeah but tom yeah, clancy's yeah. been oh. like dead 10 years and he's still writing and just propped up his sticks. <laughs> and uh william william yeah, johnstone yeah, as well yeah, yeah, he's he's very um, elite. He can his uh, military trainers allows him to write after death. But um, and uh, wasn't a uh, James Frey that uh, the guy who did uh, the Million Little Pieces? He mm -hmm. had some sort of like Andy Warhol factory for his terrible uh, young adult sci-fi books. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Where <laughs> they would pay them like two hundred bucks. And then they would just knock them out. Yeah, and everyone loved uh, "I Am Number Four. That really, um, really blew up. And I'm sure we were all like constantly quoting it, and we got, uh, yeah, always comparing ourselves to characters from "I Am Number Four. Netflix thing of it. It's I me mad, but it it's true. Oh, sorry, you broke up a load there. Oh, uh, they made a Netflix thing of I Am Number Four. Did they? I thought it was just like Which a movie. sucks, but... Uh, well, uh, that, that's what I mean. It was a Netflix original uh, thing. 
I'm sure there was a movie in theaters, that and they yeah, planned what? for like a, fi- a series of five, like Twilight, and then no one mm. saw the first one. So uh, uh, that, that could be true. Yeah, but um, back to against creativity. So his recommendations at the end, his six impossible ideas. Did anything strike anyone as like? Yeah, that's a silver bullet. That's going to fix things. Because I, I came away a little unconvinced by them. I came away kind of both thinking that I've I've heard a lot of this stuff before and that it was a little too... It wasn't... There's nothing there that really jumped out at me as this is the stake we're going to drive through capitalism's heart, you know? Well, I've these things... two monster movie metaphors in one description of it to be super gothic marxist <laughs> one of the things i i was a bit sort of frustrated by um was to talk about gentrification because he says that like art washing and gentrifying of neighborhoods can be resisted and he talks about the um the uh boyle heights groups uh and the the uh group that attacked that serial cafe in london and i'm like uh, I, when i was reading those bits i was like it feels like the defense here is a little bit half-hearted because it goes into the questions of political legitimacy and violent direct action. Um, and I'm like, if you're serious about resisting art washing and resisting gentrification and the kind of racialized uh, decanting of people that he talks about, then surely that has to be on the table. You know, how do you how do you organize that if you're going to shy away from talking about questions of uh, direct action that, you know, might mean that those good uh, liberal newspaper columnists would talk about how the left are the real fascists. Also, um, the Serial Killer Cafe is still there, and it's actually open a second location. So, so they're direct... fine. So we don't, need to, we don't need to worry about them. <laughs> direct action did not get the goods this time. Um, no, precisely because the defense of it was so half-hearted and people went, oh, well, we probably shouldn't do stuff like that, when uh, that the action against them was reflective of a bigger systemic issue. Yeah, I don't know if you can really beat anti-gentrification in Shoreditch. So, well, yeah. Well, so that's why... Yeah, that's why I was sort of a bit frustrated with it because it's like, you know, what I'm, I'm, I, I sort of get what he says about this uh, notion of kind of like organizing campaigns and resistance campaigns, like uh, the stuff in the, the South Bank uh, campaign. Uh, but you know, at a certain point, you're facing uh, what you see is that gentrification is an extension of. Of, of, to use an old Marxist term, class war, right? Mm. It's about rich people shifting out poor people so they can make turn their houses and communities into assets from which you can extract surplus value. Yeah. So, like, London is if you're not... terrible for this. <laughs> Sorry? London is the, the absolute worst place in the world for that. It's apart yeah, from London, London is slowly being hollowed out of people who actually live there. And what you have are houses which are now empty and have been empty in some cases for five, 10, 15 years, because they're just assets. And what you have is you have a kind of ring of places around the, around the city that people are forced out to, you know, shattering like 
emotional support systems, families, communities, doing kind of untold social damage. Um, and then they're forced to come back in to work in, in pretty precarious, low-paid jobs, which emphasize creativity and self-entrepreneurship. So I'm like, if you're serious about resisting gentrification, you know, it can't, the protests are not necessarily going to be nice mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily going to be approved of. Are you saying we should uh, be like, you know, real direct action, like cut off the serial killer cafe guys heads on the internet or something or what? I mean, this is, this is the, this is the question that I think maybe the human geographers need to, you know, where you go, yeah, okay. Direct action can sometimes work, but like, you know, as you say, so the, uh, um, the South Bank has been kind of won over because of a mass organized movement. But like resisting gentrification requires class consciousness. Um, you know, there are there are uh, Maoist and Marxist groups at work in Boyle Heights, which I noticed specifically aren't mentioned in this uh, little passage where he's talking about the gentrification there, because their interest is much more explicitly radical and potentially, you know, much less easy to get behind. Cool. Um, what do I don't you know. I, I, maybe I'm coming off way too. Maybe I'm going way too strong on that. I don't know. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm not going to hand this to MI5. I think it's definitely something that. So that at the end of the day, if someone views your neighborhood as an asset, that they can manipulate to create surplus value to profit. And they already care so little about the people that live there. The very well documented effects of gentrification, that's sort of an important thing to keep in mind, is that the people who do this are not, it's sort of like politicians who deny climate change. They are not handed information that says it's wrong. They mm. act in a manner that acts, that presumes it's wrong because they make more money doing it. Assuming that they literally don't think it's happening is fiercely, fiercely naive. And it may be, um, politically efficacious to say uh, a liberal to look at someone and go oh well they're dumb because they don't think this is real meanwhile any amount of Marxist analytic gives you like no they know it's real they just don't care like Mm -hmm. they privilege other things over that Mm -hmm. likewise in gentrification there really is an insurmountable amount of data that isn't even argued against in um, public spin like uh planning spaces, economic spaces, like it's just, they gentrify because they know it generates them income. If yeah. you're already at that point where you don't care about people and you look at this as like, or you don't care about those people, you care about the types of people you'd bring in because they have more money than those people. Passing around a flyer, signatures saying that you resist something, or, and this is where I also get frustrated, really going to do anything. Showing up to, you know, wave signs and chant to do much. That's where we see in America sort of the farce of leftist societies going like highways, rolling big banners saying that they don't like something. It's like, they don't care. They all don't agree with you and already don't care. That is simply not going to do anything. In order to convince someone, you need to have a conversation with them. And in order to resist something beyond that, you need you you need point a force. It becomes almost like a physical. They're going to annihilate your neighborhood 
and destroy your neighbors in the pursuit of profit. And you're going to counteract that with a pamphlet. Like, do you, like, it raises the question of in any other circumstance, would this be a rational response or a fair or effective response? Mm. And the answer pretty clearly comes back no, I think. Mm. Yeah, it does, again, come back to if the reason for gentrifying a neighborhood is profit, if you can make it unprofitable, then that's how you're going to win. Yeah. Uh, if you break enough windows, yeah. no one wants to uh, rent your stylish uh, work live apartments, then uh, then no, the gentrifiers are going to move out, and you get back to uh, back to what you had. And not that I would ever mild, advocate that, but you know, in a mild credit to uh, people who resist more radical response. To be fair, there are other ways to make something uh, economically disadvantageous, and so those also become effective. Mm. And so it it. I mean, I, I, I lean in a certain way on this question, to be fair, um, and I lean against uh, less direct action. Ultimately, the question is uh, more putting a knife on capitalist urge. And simple action, I mean, that, that's where boycotts can effectively become powerful. Mm. Is very bad at block building. Just the worst. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, I mean, I just, I was going to say like things like neighborhood unions and occupations and squatting even uh, are, uh, are are tools that I think are uh, interesting and maybe not mentioned here for you know reasons of space or uh, whatever. But I think. Uh, you know, I like the point that you made. Like, they don't care. Like, they don't. They 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 just don't care about the people that they'll displace. They're well aware of the costs that that's going to exert, and those costs are enormous. Um, but you you they will happily factor that in. They'll happily factor that in because they think it's worth it. Even though, I mean, even if you take the largest macro scale view. Uh, like gentrification in in London has been nothing but a disaster, except for uh, foreign property companies and like rich property developers. So I'm like, I, I I I'm I'm totally on board that like there needs to be a plurality of tactics that goes beyond like petitions. It's a very, it's a decent book, I think. Yeah, um, it... this against creativity. And like anything, it's going to have its flaws, but um, its its flaws are interesting enough to chew over. Yeah. It's not and like it's least, just bad. And at least the general the general thought of it, I think, is fairly inarguable. That's like the first couple chapters you can almost, if you've been active in leftism even a little bit in the past mm. few years, you can brush past maybe the first half of the book as... Things that are very well established. That part seems yeah, to I mean, be built more. Most liberals outside would the agree with this stuff. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. Your average like uh, we resisted liberal isn't going to believe. Everyone hates Uber. Everyone hates uh, art washing and gentrification. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think. I think you. You're given. You like. I think that's assuming <laughs> quite a lot. I think there are lots of people who don't. Who don't. Who don't think, because. 
that kind in, of in abstract of... at least like yeah, if you totally, say yeah. this we're going to net gentrify this neighborhood most people on the center to left are gonna, like or center left they're going to say that's a bad thing and they're, they're again, again i don't I, I i wish that were true but i don't think that is <laughs> well, well, i mean they would they would like be they would happily gentrify a neighborhood they yeah, would just totally. they they wouldn't want it to be called gentrification they would see like in my my old neighborhood all the um african churches getting closed down and replaced with like kale place like a, a literal juice bar and mm. crossfit places they they wouldn't look at that and say that's gentrification and i approve they would look at that and say hey now we've got a juice bar yeah and yeah because yeah. the and... costs of gentrification are so often deliberately hidden mm. so yeah. it's like what you go is like the people don't even necessarily use the term they go oh look this place is on the up oh yeah you on know, the this... up that's uh well it's less sketchy now it used to be sketchy. Yeah. Now, now it's on the up. This sketchy place is meaning... yeah. But, but so I think, I think, I think that, that there would be lots of people who would really benefit from having that uh, term gentrification concretized into real terms. When you walk through that cool neighborhood, and you kind of have to reckon with the fact that this means that there have probably been scores of people driven out of their homes away from their family away from their community that this place has been co-opted in a way that is profoundly damaging that goes beyond just the fact that oh look you can get kale smoothies now <laughs> i mean I, I i i like i say i would totally like to think that lots of people who would call themselves like center left or liberal would would totally be on board that gentrification is a bad thing but honestly, I think we're at the point where that can't be assumed. <laughs> yeah, liberals are the worst. So you know, <laughs> I have a, I have a, a a negative thought, but it's so negative that the function and uh, we actually have uh, like Marx and Lenin uh, talking about this a bit. This is sort of where um it's become a joke term in certain spaces, but but at least the uh, the cultural etymological root of woke is the notion that the way that they keep you able to propagate these uh, negative entrapments of your fellow man and of yourself is by keeping your focus very, very small and very, very low. Because so long as you're only thinking about yourself and you're thinking moment to moment and you're thinking like, well, we didn't have a juice bar, but now we do have a juice bar, so that's a plus. It's only in those terms that you can get... uh, Largely decent people, because that—that's sort of the other thing—is that we get sometimes an amount of animus in left discussion spaces that can eclipse the fact that we we care about this because people are valuable. Yeah, totally. Can't be a misanthropic leftist because, or you can have even a very cynical view of man, but you don't hate mankind because then you would not strive for these things that would better the conditions of mankind. But yeah. Um, and that sometimes isn't always reconciled in the hearts of certain leftists, to put it very, uh, politely. Um, sometimes you see an amount of, I mean, in America, we see that amount of malice towards, like, working class Trumpians and things like that, where there's this, 
we on paper understand how someone can be led through the labyrinth of reactionary thought and brought to this place, but moment to moment we feel an inordinate amount of malice towards them uh, that can supersede um, effects to really act uh, effectively politically organized to to stem that tide. Mm. Um, but the way that you keep mostly decent people doing things that are very, very awful is you keep their view very contracted. So yeah. that, like you were saying, you you admit that when this comes in, something's going out. Or like, what was Boldo... Or uh, this nice-looking uh, condo was built on the rubble of affordable housing that has not been replaced in any way. And mm-hmm. there's no... Where in a decent socialist system, you'd have uh, maybe you temporarily displace them to build a new place, but then you offer stipends or uh, steep discounts or something like that to the people who were displaced for this new place. So it's like, you don't have to go. You can stay at the same rate, and now it will be better. And this was... Mm. And uh, systems that are that are totally economically viable by most of the uh, developers for these things. They're just deliberately not done because they'd rather... Uh, they'd rather make that extra money than care about people. And that's where I think Gareth was going, that getting someone to admit they don't care about their neighbors or they don't care about who is there before them is nearly impossible. You, it's yeah, very yeah. hard to get them to say those words. Yeah. They're willing to take the poison fruit, but they're not willing always... or They, they have a staunch resistance to saying that they like the poison. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, and that ties back to what you were saying that the base element of leftism and Marxism is class consciousness. Is literally, um, and that spans to women's issues, to queer issues, to racial issues of just make people aware of the cost of these things, and then ask them in that knowledge, is it still worth it to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And I'd like to just take this moment to talk to about our sponsors, uh, Crew Juice of Bridgeland. Uh, Crew Juice make all uh, cold-pressed juices from only the best organic ingredients, and their first branch was built on someone's house, and they were only able to build it there because someone died there. Uh, go into Crew Juice and say, uh, and you'll get 25% off a pumped-up kicks. That's the actual name of one of their products. They named after that a terrible song uh, by mentioning this episode. So, um, yeah, against creativity. And yeah, I liked it. So, uh, yeah, Ollie Mould, Dr. Ollie Moulds, well done. Great job. Yeah, that's good. So, um, yeah, uh, Liquid Guy, um, just remind folks where they can find more of your stuff. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at the Liquid Guy, uh, thelicridguy.com. Uh, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash the liquid guy. Cool. And um, yeah, have you got any anything else? Uh, you've you've done your uh, capital and uh, postmodernism ones. Is there anything else in the pipeline? Uh, the next thing is going to be the book on Gothic Marxism, which I am going to be writing awesome. over the next uh, six months or so. So sign up at Patreon and you'll get access to each chapter as it's published. Cool. If you need like really dark uh, song titles to use as chapter titles, I've, I've got loads. So hit me up. Uh, I'll, I'll be in touch. <laughs> Good. Yeah. 
a, a lot of typo negative songs would work really well. Um, yeah. And typo negative fucking slay. So they do. Uh, you know who else is good? Is uh, Bliss Signal. They're a band. Uh, have one EP, one album. Album's called Bliss Signal. And they have a song in it called Bliss Signal. So they've achieved my favorite thing in music where a song, album, and band all have the same name. Uh, they're a collaboration between the dude who used to be in, or I guess the main guy of the band Altar of Plagues, who are, that's James Kelly. He's also in a band called Wife, who I haven't really heard of. Langdon, have you heard of them? Yeah, I actually, yeah. I've, uh, I've written a bit about this stuff. It's, uh, it's oh, cool. his electronic uh, side project. Oh, right, okay. Well, I guess not side project anymore, um, <coughs> but because technically this is a collaboration between Wife and uh, Mum Dance. My so power. it's officially, it was at least initially officially billed as a collaboration of those two um, electronic music projects. And then for the, uh, when they put out this record, they went like, wait, no, wait. No, say it's say it's by James Kelly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you Ultra Plagues were amazing in their day. Yes, they, and they broke up on like the peak of their creativity. The last album, uh, Teeth, Glory, and Injury, was incredible. I the, the first few albums were like really, really well done post black metal. Then Teeth, Glory, and Injury sounds like nothing else in the whole world except maybe a little bit like Godflesh but um, mostly like itself, because it's incredible. And it has the only non-embarrassing extreme metal video ever made. And for uh, God alone, just look it up on YouTube. It's uh, it's an extreme metal video that's not horribly embarrassing. It's actually happened once in human history. You did it. uh, Yeah. You did it, mates. So, uh, but Bliss Signal uh, sounds... It kind of continues with Teeth, uh, Glory and Injury. Uh, a bit of its sound, and um, <coughs> this is going to be a song called Floodlight. It's in the middle of that album. Uh, you can find it on Bandcamp, and I'm not even uh, don't even know if it has a record label bringing it out, but that's it, fine. It does. Uh, yep, it was put out by Profound Lore. Oh, maybe that's yep. fun. Okay. Yep, that's how I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, the the profound call law call out episode is coming. Yeah, we just gotta be brave. We just gotta get our bravery up. Yeah, I've been yeah. like touching spiders and going near bats just to make myself a little braver. But, um, <laughs> Looking at holes, just yeah. deep holes, holes with no bottom, just staring in them. Yeah, I, I sometimes uh, turn the light off before I exit a room, and. Uh, yeah, I'm, that's I'm gonna, I can't do that. Yeah, that's that's I'm a step beyond. Level. But uh, I start yeah. shrieking the second. Also, uh, the flushing of toilets too loud. Oh, yeah, very like, scary. Yeah, you remember that uh, X Files episode with the the fluke tapeworm man who came up out of the toilet to like grab people and pull them into the toilet. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm still yeah. Yeah, I feel really bad about about. I'd forgotten about it for a bit. Now I now I remember. Oh yeah, sorry. I, I probably like I went back. <laughs> like a whole generation was traumatized by that. That was like older millennials' version of the ending of Toy Story Three. Like I <laughs> just, just this, want... like mass psychic event. And, and I just want shitty. Obviously. Like you will not have shitty. Yeah. 
you don't make doo-doo. <laughs> there could be a guy in there. You gotta do do you make doo-doo on a man and he takes you? <laughs> exactly. <And you're> like... <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, but we'll be coming back next week because we're doing, uh, I think next week. I mean, that's could... Cherry. I believe that is Cherry. So a really, really good novel that yeah. you should be checking out. Um, we're doing it with uh, Nate from Hell of a Way to Die and Trash Future. Uh, one, two of my favorite podcasts, and he's an awesome guy and, and a troop. So I've been saluting this whole time in preparation for the, my... Yeah, preparation for when i have to salute a real troop it was hard for me to uh, log on today because i have one hand perpetually raised in salute yeah that's how that's just how much we respect our troops respecting um, the living hell out of them right now yeah here's some direct action for you salute the troops (laughs) (laughs) bumper sticker perfect um but yeah so we'll be back next week with one of those um and here's Bliss Signal.